Well, if you remember, last week we began to look at the formal history of the founding of our nation, briefly looking at that famous document known as the Declaration of Independence, where 13 colonies had united together to declare their independence from King George III, the King of Great Britain. Well, today, I want to continue to look at some of our history, very controversial history, history which few Christians are aware of, but they need to be. We need to look at these things. Now, if I may borrow the metaphor of a plane, last week and this week, we are just entering the runway. We're just kind of in a holding pattern. It won't, it won't be until next week where we begin to take off and we really get into the meat of the matter, into why there is going to be a death of America. Now, many believers are under the assumption or belief that our country was formally founded explicitly on the Judeo-Christian faith, having the belief that our government and its representatives were absolute proponents of biblical truth. They were devout Christians. They were devoted to Jesus, to Yeshua. However, as you begin to dig into history, a very different story begins to unfold. You quickly realize that many of the founding fathers, they were not Christian at all. Certainly many of them were willing to accept the valuable moral principles that the Bible had to offer, but in all reality, they were far from being true proponents of the faith. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at some statements from some very key instrumental men who played a serious role in shaping this nation. Men such as Thomas Paine. Now, who is Thomas Paine? If you're not familiar with Thomas Paine, he was the actual first one, or said to be the first one to, that, to make that statement, to make that quote, the United States, these United States. He was also responsible for a very famous pamphlet. It was called Common Sense. And this pamphlet, you need to understand, it really was the inspiration behind the Declaration of Independence. It was this pamphlet which promoted liberty. It promoted freedom from tyrannical rule, from dictatorships, government like, governments like uh, King George III in, in Great Britain. Now, if you read his memorial on his gravestone, it really sums up how influential he is. And I want to look at this. Here I have a picture of his gravestone, and you'll notice at the top on this site was buried Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense. And underneath that, it says the pamphlet that stirred the American colonies to independence. You think about who this guy was. Then it goes on to give a quote by John Adams. And look at what it says. I'll put this up here so you can read it easier. Without the pen of pain, the sword of Washington would have been wielded in vain. History is to ascribe the revolution to Thomas Paine. Think about that statement for a second. It helps you put into perspective who this man was and just how influential, how important of a part Thomas Paine played in the shaping of our nation. His actions, his writings of common sense, it played a critical role and according to John Adams, it would be the most essential role. He was the one responsible for getting the people to move to revolution. With that said, I want to share with you a quote from this pamphlet, Common Sense. And I want to do so for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the first reason is I want you to experience the, the, the words, the, the feel of what the Common Sense was about, this, this pamphlet was about. I want, to, I want you to experience that. But secondly, the particular passage that I'm going to show you that I've chosen, I've chosen to prove a point, a critical point, which you'll soon see. Now, the statement that uh, we find in Common Sense, Paine is quoted as saying this, In England, a king hath little more to do than to make war and give away places which in plain terms is to impoverish the nation and set it together by the ears. In other words, what was he notorious for doing? Taxing, pillaging the people, right? 
A pretty business indeed for a man to be allowed 800,000 sterling a year for and worshipped into the bargain. Of more worth is one honest man to society and in the sight of God than all the crowned ruffians that ever lived. This kind of gives you a feel of what this pamphlet was about. A very intense writing. It elevated freedom. It elevated liberty. It made you want to have a taste for it. It made you want to experience it, right? It's interesting, if you remember last week when we read the Declaration of Independence, if you go through common sense, the Declaration of Independence and the same feeling you get from common sense, they're identical. I mean, this isn't a surprise since this is the pamphlet that sparked revolution. It would only seem appropriate then that this same feel, the same textures that were used actually went into the declaration itself, and they did. But the point I really want to stress here, this is the most important point. Upon reading this passage, you could see how one could easily deduce, without question, Thomas Paine is a Christian. He's a believer. Look at what it says. I've underlined this. Of more worth is one honest man to a society, and in the sight of God, than all the crowned ruffians that ever live. I mean, Thomas Paine mentions God in the context of what appears to indicate he is a believer. And it's statements like these that men will take you to, that they will quote to show you proof that, hey, the founding fathers, men like Thomas Paine, they were devout Christians. Just go and read their statements. And yet, it was this very man who made the following statement in his work called The Age of Reason. Not long after the birth, the inception of this nation. Look at what he says. It is the fable of Jesus Christ as told in the New Testament and the wild and visionary doctrine raised thereon against which I contend. The story taking it as told is blasphemously obscene. This is the guy responsible, said to be responsible essentially for the birth of this nation, for revolution. Now what does he mean by blasphemously obscene? The story as told. Let me give you an example. Thomas Paine goes on to say, what is it that the Testament, New Testament, teaches us? To believe that the Almighty committed debauchery with a woman engaged to be married? And the belief of this debauchery is called faith. In other words, he went after the Immaculate Conception. We know the story according to the New Testament, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was the one to cause Mary to conceive. She was conceived of by God while she was engaged to Joseph. Thomas Plain calls it debauchery. This is what he calls blasphemously obscene. Stories like this, examples like this. One thing you need to understand is this. Thomas Paine was a deist. And deists believe in God. You understand? A deist believes in God. And there were many deists at this time. Many of the founding fathers were deists. Many deists existed at this time, and what's interesting is they were raised in Christian homes often. Many of these were raised in Christian homes. Deists believe in one God. They believe in the supreme creator. But here's the problem. They rejected the infallibility of scripture. They believe it was corrupted with stories like what we read about in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 of Mary receiving this immaculate conception. Literally, conceiving of the Holy Spirit. They denounced the divinity of Yeshua, the deistic nature. I find this interesting, consider we're still dealing with these issues today. The very same issues. They did not believe in what the Catholics would call Trinity, what I would call the complex unity of God. And they did not believe in all the beautiful miracles that we read about in the Gospels that took place, or in the, books of, the book of Acts. You think about Yeshua going out, Healing the blind, raising the lame up so that they could walk, raising the dead, walking on water. All of these things are blasphemously obscene to a deist. So ponder that for a second. Yet, at the same time, and this is so critical, you get this, without hesitation, they will quote scripture to you. They will, without hesitation, confess the morals, the good morals, that the Bible has to offer. They have no problem doing this. And to someone who is not well-versed in Scripture, who is not refined, who is not sharpened, 
right, in the word, they can appear to be very, very Christian. I mean, they're quoting scripture. They speak of God as the creator. They must be Christian. You need to realize something. Our country was founded during the age of enlightenment. It was founded during the age of reason, a very, very powerful movement of intellectualism, of philosophy. Our country was birthed at this time. And you really pick up on this fact when you read the following statement uh, uh, by Thomas Paine. And he says, I do not believe in the creed professed by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. Paine was all about enlightenment, all about reason, according to man's philosophy, a very dangerous and yet a very appealing perspective to our flesh. It is. But contrary to what Paine says here, the Bible speaks in a different way. The Bible has this wisdom to offer us. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Amen? Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. In other words, the Bible tells us we are, if we trust in our own heart, in our own mind, as Payne just said, my own mind will be my church. If you do that, according to Scripture, you are a fool. And yet many consider, at least on a secular level, Payne was brilliant. 1 Corinthians 1.20, listen to the words of Paul. Where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? This is what our God does. He makes it foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What is the foolishness of the message? If you think about what is the gospel of Yeshua? Read it. He went out, according to the prophets, went out healing, saving those who were sick, healing them who were sick, raising the dead. This is who Yeshua was. And then he gave his life for us and was supernaturally resurrected from the dead and ascended to be our intermediary between us and the Father. Right? That's the story. It's all about the power of God. Think about it. Everything we put our stock in, everything about Yeshua, he is the power of the living God. In verse 22, the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. In other words, Paul's talking about here the Jews and the Greeks. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. That's the rest of the world. And what does he say? They seek after wisdom. This is what they crave. This is their God. It's wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. All those beautiful, powerful stories that change people's lives in the New Testament, Thomas Paine identified them as blasphemously obscene, as foolishness. It's amazing. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Mashiach is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You don't need to go any further. That's who he is. He is the power and the wisdom of God. The testimony that we read in Scripture is just that. It's all about the power. Read through it. It's amazing. Let me bring another founding father to the table. Needs no introduction. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, was responsible for authoring the first draft of the Declaration. He was considered to have a prowess with the pen, powerful with the pen. Listen to what Jefferson had to say. In the New Testament, there is internal evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man, and that other parts are the fabric of the very inferior minds. It is as easy to separate those parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. In other words, Thomas Jefferson is simply stating that there are parts of the New Testament that he likened as to diamonds, In other words, they were precious. They were good. While other parts of the Bible that we have today were in fact the fabrication of man. In other words, he called other parts of the Bible dung. And he said it was obvious which is which. So what do we find here? 
This is amazing. You find Thomas Jefferson taking the typical deist approach, readily dismissing all the supernatural events in Scripture. All those powerful events of Yeshua walking on water, making the blind to see, the lame to walk, casting out demons. All of those things, in Thomas Jefferson's mind, were a fabrication. That was the dung. While all the moral principle teachings, those were the precious diamonds. And he took those out. Now, let me be clear. This didn't mean that Thomas Jefferson didn't like the Bible. He did. He didn't hesitate to quote the Bible. How many of you have heard of the Jefferson Bible? A couple of you. Thomas Jefferson decided to make his own Bible, called the Jefferson Bible. And what did he do? He went out and picked out the diamonds out of this book of what he saw to be diamonds, and he left the rest, basically cutting and pasting. You could see how easy it would be for someone to take the perspective that these men are believers based upon specific quotes that they've made. Because some of their quotes, they actually speak of God. Their quotes come directly from the Bible. The problem is, is if you don't have the full story, you could see how you'd be completely misled, thinking these men are devoted to the faith, when in all reality, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the further you dig into history, the more controversial it really becomes, especially in this country. Uh, If, in fact, you are coming from the belief that all the founding fathers were devout Christians. Listen to the following quote. It really sums up what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make right now. Thomas Jefferson said, Among the sayings and discourses imputed to him, meaning Jesus, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence. Beautiful words. But then he goes on, and others again of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture, meaning deceitfulness. Goes on to say, I separate, therefore, the gold from the dross. He's going back to his earlier metaphor, if you will, taking the diamonds out of dunghill. This one's a little bit more gentle. The gold from the dross. And leave the latter to the stupidity of some and the roguery of others of his disciples. Of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the first corrupter of the doctrines of Yeshua. Think about that statement. I'm going to tell you right now. If you run into anyone on any level who is anti-Pauline, walk away. Because your red flag should immediately go up. The ministry that the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul has changed the world. It is awesome. It was inspired by the Ruach HaKodesh. Makes up over half of the New Testament, if you include him as the writer of Hebrews. Think about that. And look at what Thomas Jefferson, a founding father had to think about Paul. He condemns him as a corrupter of the doctrine of Yeshua. Again, you need to to see the reality. Jefferson loved parts of the Bible. Thus, he wouldn't hesitate to quote those parts. But he also rejected just as much. Thus, in all reality, he denounced the true testimony of Yeshua. Because you can't take bits and pieces out. Do not add, do not take away. You can read Deuteronomy 4. You either take all of it and accept it, or you take none of it. You can't piecemeal it. And believe me, there are no diamonds and dunghills in our Bible. There are only diamonds. Amen? Amen. Now, what's so frightening about all this, when you, when, you, when you think about this and you start analyzing this, you start to see striking similarities between these deists, these founding fathers, and the Pharisees in the first century. Striking similarities. Because it was the Pharisees who went out, and when Yeshua did miraculous healings, when he showed them his power, what did they do? They did not believe. When In Matthew 12, when he he cast out the demons, they said, oh, no, 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 he doesn't cast out demons. He only casts out demons by the ruler of demons. They discounted the power. This is the deist approach. In in John chapter 9, he heals the blind man. Well, the Jews didn't like that. They bring the blind man before them. They rebuke him in John chapter 9 and say, give glory to God. That man is a sinner. They actually said Yeshua was a sinner. They denounced in every way as he went his power. 
And when he said, I am the son of God, they were ready to pick up stones to kill him. Because they even understood, now he makes himself God. That's it. We're going to stone him. All of these concepts were with the founding fathers, many of them. Ponder that for a second. You have to understand, just because someone agrees with some of the texts of the Bible, which, which obviously is beautiful, it doesn't make them a disciple of Yeshua. It doesn't mean they're a devoted Christian. You understand? We need to start to become critical thinkers. You cannot afford it. You cannot afford to, to be lazy. Everything that you see here that comes through into your eyes, that comes through your heart, it better be getting filtered through the Word of God because you're going to be deceived. Let me show you one more quote from Jefferson. And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva and the brain of Jupiter. It was interesting is Minerva it was the Roman goddess of wisdom. Just as a side note, all of our states, they carry a special seal. You probably know this. They all carry a special seal. If you look at the seal of California, it is the Roman goddess Minerva. It's pretty crazy. But Jefferson, he goes on to say this, but we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do way with all this artificial scaffolding and restore to us a primitive and genuine doctrines. I want you to think about the statement. There is so much said here that you need to appreciate. You know, one of the things that you need to understand about the founding fathers and, and just the time period, when, every, when anyone put pen to paper, especially founding fathers, men of their caliber, whenever they put pen to paper or quill to parchment, whatever you want to say, they took pride in being clever. They were cautious. They were careful. They were masters of the quill. Masters of the pen. And when they put that pen, that quill to paper, believe me, there was multiple levels of thought that went into that. And let me tell you something. If you don't approach their writings as carefully and as cleverly, you are going to miss a lot. You are going to miss a lot. Let me just give you a small example here. The statement that is on the screen, but we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all the artificial scaffolding. It's interesting. We learn so much here. Number one, the perspective of the founding fathers, many of them, were that they would never impose their own ideologies upon you. They believed in freedom and liberty so much, and I do as well, but they believed in it so much they would never impose their, their thoughts and ideologies upon you. Because they knew you had the freedom and right to believe whatever you wanted to believe. But when you look at this statement, what is Jefferson getting at? This is what's amazing. He goes, because of this freedom, because of this liberty that they have, what is his expectation? Well, they're going to come to their senses. And they're going to realize this is nonsense. And so, you know, you, you look at the history of Christianity, what, what is it about? Force feeding a lot of it. Study the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Killing people. Right? Killing Jews over this for not becoming converts. And yet Thomas Jefferson's taken the point, I have a better way in, in, in essence. There's a better way here. Let them have freedom to believe whatever they want. Whatever they want, let them have that freedom. And we'll be peace and we'll, we'll live at harmony with each other. But the expectation in his mind is that they would denounce all these crazy things that we read about in the New Testament. Very amazing. What about Benjamin Franklin? Again, someone that doesn't need an introduction. Most of us have studied about him, learned about him at a very young age. Considered by many to be the most brilliant and gifted man in his era. I mean, he was a scientist, inventor, author, printer, statesman, patriot. Some consider a spy. Signer of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Benjamin Franklin was a founding father. Now, I want to read you a letter. And this, this is what's amazing about the history that we have. A lot of the history that you read about and all the things we read about them were by letters. Because people back then wrote a lot of letters. As today, we email. 
We email a lot. We're reading someone else's email. This is very powerful information. And the only difference is, is when they wrote a letter, they took the time to think about things, to think it through. Every word has its place. Their ideas and what they wanted to convey were clear. They were, they were masterful. So look at what he says. Now, the following letter I'm going to show you is by, it's by Benjamin Franklin, and he's writing to Ezra Stiles. Ezra Stiles, he is the president of Yale College. Okay, he's the president of Yale College. And what we realize is Ezra was asking, he wanted to know where Benjamin Franklin stood in faith, in his religion. And look at how Benjamin Franklin responds. You desire to know something of my religion. It's the first time I've been questioned upon it. But I do not take your curiosity amiss and shall endeavor in a few words to gratify it. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render to him is doing good to his, child, to his other children. goes on to say, As of Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire. Now, what does that tell you? I mean, when we read things like this, it should grip you. You've got to be paying attention. And the first thing he says here is, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire. This tells me something about Ezra Stiles. This gives me an indication that Mr. Stiles is worried about what is important. The most important thing. Because if you're going to be a man of faith, devoted to the faith, Yeshua is number one. End of discussion. He is the foundation. There's no way to the Father but by him. So he's it. And we can see Ezra Stiles, now he's asking, specifically, he wants to know, what's your take on Yeshua? You could tell me what your take on God is all day long, but I want to know about Yeshua. And then he goes on to say, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Awesome, right? Amazing, eloquent. But... I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. What did I tell you before? What is the commonality among the deists? They believe this text was corrupted. And you know, you start to take that position, anything's game. Then you can go just at your will and start plucking out what you call diamonds. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have with the most of the present dissenters in England some doubts as to his divinity. Deus, Deus, Deus. All these things we're talking about are deism, dealing with Deus. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing uh, the truth with less trouble. Now, this is an amazing statement. This gives you insight into uh, where some of the Deists lied. They believed in the immortality of the soul. And so what Benjamin Franklin's saying here, that it alludes to here, he's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to wait for the time where I'm going to receive and know the truth with much less trouble. In other words, in the, in the age to come, when I, when I go on. Now, I'm not reading the whole letter here, but I'm, I'm just giving you parts of it. Now, I'm going to skip ahead to the P.S. portion. I'll listen to what he says. I confide that you will not expose me to criticism and censure by publishing any part of this communication to you. What does that tell you? Now, to me, this is good news. Benjamin Franklin is writing in confidence to the president of Yale College. And the contents of the letter, he is very concerned about getting out. He's very concerned about getting out because why? Well, we just read it. He is overtly making the, the notion that he is a deist. Okay, he challenged the divinity of this. And he believes the scriptures have been corrupted. He is a deist. And he's concerned about it getting out. What does that tell you about society? This is what's amazing. This tells me that predominantly society at this time, it was Christian. And they would not have tolerated it. This would have caused problems for Ben Franklin. It could have. And this is good news for me. And this is going to come into play as we continue in the coming weeks. Now he goes on to say, I have ever let others enjoy their religious sentiments without reflecting on them for those that appeared to me insupportable and even absurd. One thing, again, let me remind you, a deist 
was a man, uh, specifically the founding fathers, they were all about the peace process. Believe whatever you want doesn't matter. I want to live at peace with you. So it doesn't matter what you believe, and I won't impose my own beliefs upon you. You can see this here. Now he goes on to say, all sects here, and we have a great variety, have experienced my goodwill in assisting them with subscriptions for building their new places of worship. And as I have never opposed any of their doctrines, I hope to go out of the world in peace with them all. And that's good on one level. Not giving the church any, not, not wreaking havoc on the church, causing trouble for them. And one aspect I see this is very good. In one aspect, my heart is crushed that Benjamin Franklin is taking this standpoint. So, but then we get to other statements. I think I put it up here. Other statements that Ben Franklin said that are a little more forthcoming. Original sin, and this is a paraphrase from a much longer discourse, original sin is as ridiculous as imputed righteousness. You have to think about this statement for a second because he literally attacks two of the most basic biblical fundamentals that exist in the Bible. Number one, original sin. What does the Bible say about original sin? Job tells us who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. And for those of you who are not familiar with the doctrine of original sin, it's the statement that mankind is cursed through the fall of Adam. Because of what Adam did, all of mankind is cursed. Well, Job seems to agree. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. King David agreed. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Original sin. Listen to the writings of Paul. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who is he talking about? Adam. Because Adam was disobedient, mankind was made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. True words. For Benjamin Franklin to make a statement that original sin is as ridiculous as imputed righteousness, that's crazy. These are fundamental. These are basic building blocks of the faith. Imputed righteousness? Look at what Paul says about imputed righteousness. He, did not, he is Abraham. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was accounted to Abraham because he believed him. He believed what he told him. Verse 23 Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. What was imputed to Abraham? Righteousness. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us. It'll be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Yeshua our Lord from the dead. If we believe the Father raised our Lord up from the dead, we are going to be saved. And if it is a true faith, we will walk like it. We will walk in his commandments. Imputed righteousness is not a fallacy in any way, I assure you. Unfortunately, Benjamin Franklin is is in error concerning this matter. And and let me further state, it's not an insignificant matter. When you start talking about original sin, you start talking about imputed righteousness, these are critical doctrines that you have to understand. In other words, I'm telling you, it's salvational. If you don't believe in imputed righteousness, you're in trouble. If you don't believe Yeshua is the righteousness of God, and through him, it will be imputed to him. Imputed to you, rather. If you don't believe that, you have a serious faith problem. Let me bring another founding father to the table. John Adams, the second president, first vice president. Again, he helped draft the declaration along with Franklin. Listen to these words. They're quite good at first. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence, again, every word that they wrote, they wrote carefully. Very, very carefully. Notice the words that he used. The general principles on which the fathers achieved, achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, that sounds great, but then he goes on to say this. In favor of these general principles... In philosophy, religion, and government, 
I could fill sheets, quotations from Frederick of Prussia, from whom? Uh, Gibbon, Boilingbroke, Rousseau, and Voltaire. And think about it. these are philosophers. Philosophers, great philosophers. You know, if I was to pick any passage to sum up the reality behind the founding of this nation, this would rank somewhere in the top. This passage sums up the mindset of many of the founders of this nation. Yes, it's true, just as John Adams states here, that the general principles on which the fathers achieve independence, they were in fact the principles of Christianity. However, those principles were those principles that were in favor of philosophy, religion, and government. The statement that he makes here at the end is telling, and it's the reality that lies behind the founding of this nation. You know, when he says, I'll underline this for you, look at what he says here. I could fill sheets of quotations from Rousseau and Voltaire. Let me give you an example of Voltaire, who Voltaire was. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. This is where he was, he hated Christianity. Again, he's quoted as saying, it took 12 ignorant fishermen to establish Christianity. I will show the world how one Frenchman can destroy it. Think about these things. And in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, listen to what Adam states concerning Voltaire. I should have given my reason for rejoicing in Voltaire and company. It is because I believe that they have done more than even Luther or Calvin to lower the tone of that proud hierarchy that shot itself up above the clouds and more to propagate religious liberty than Calvin or Luther or even Locke. The more we look into the founding fathers, the more we see that our preconceived notions that we've grown up with of being established exclusively upon a Judeo-Christian faith, it's simply not true. It's simply not true. And it's time we start calling things the way they are. Stop sugarcoating. Stop seeing things through rose-colored glasses. If it's sin, call it sin. If it's good, call it good. Now, this doesn't change the fact, going through this stuff, that I love this nation, because I do. I love this nation. It doesn't change the fact that I have a lot to be thankful for because of this nation and the freedoms and the liberties that are offered to us. I am 100% in support of that. But I am not going to distort reality. We have to call it the way it is. Now, as we come to 1797, again, not long after the Declaration of Independence was signed and the U.S. Constitution was established, the United States government, they decided to make a treaty with Tripoli. The world at the time was in total discourse. It was, it was a mess. And they wanted to be at peace with them. You know, they, they were attacking their ships. They weren't even armed. They were attacking their ships, so they wanted to make a treaty with them and be at peace with them. So they created what is known as the Treaty of Tripoli. Listen to what the United States government declared. The government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. This was their declaration. This was not made in 1950. This wasn't made in 1910. This was made in the incubation period, if you will, just that we were infant. We were still an infant in this country. Very early on in this country, this is what the United States government stated. Now, some will say, well, they were pandering to the Muslims at this time. Because obviously, they, the, the, you think about the history between Christianity and the Muslims, it's, not, it's pretty bloody. And because they wanted peace, they started pandering to the Muslims, saying, well, whoa, 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 we're not a Christian nation. Let me tell you something. No nation that is Christian, and truly Christian, holding fast to the Judeo-Christian faith, will ever go out and denounce their faith. It will not happen. It's just interesting. One of the leading Episcopalian ministers in the post-founding era, Dr. Bird Wilson. And I want to look at what he says because now we're going to get to see the world at that time through a believer's eyes, through a minister's eyes. What did he perceive? What was he looking at at the time? Look at what he says. The founders of our nation were nearly all infidels. I want to stop right there because, again, He was very, very careful in penning this. He doesn't say, and I want to emphasize this, he does not say all the founding fathers were all infidels. 
That's not what he said. He said nearly all infidels. Well, what does this tell us? There were true devout Christians that existed. Again, I just want to call it how it is. I want to show the reality. But he said nearly all infidels. When the war was over, the Constitution was framed and God was neglected. He was not merely forgotten. He was absolutely voted out of the Constitution. The proceedings as published by Thompson, the secretary, show that the question was gravely debated whether God should be in the Constitution or not. And after a solemn debate, he was deliberately voted out of it. In other words, they got together and they talked about this. Where are we going to go when we're framing, the, the, when, when, when we're starting the architectural framing of our nation, documents, the Declaration, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, when we pen these documents, this was brought to the table. Things like this were discussed. He goes on and says, those who have been called to administer the, uh, the government have not been men making any public profession of Christianity. You know, for many Christians who thought we were literally built solely upon the Bible and men who had devoted themselves to the Bible, this can be a devastating blow. I understand that. I'm not looking to take the wind out of your sails. That's not my point today. My whole point is I want you to see things clearly. I want you to see things accurately rather than how you want them to be or how you think they should be. Because this is the whole problem. There are too many people today who have blurred the lines. And the definition of what it means to be truly Christian in nature, to stand upon the Judeo-Christian faith, it's been mutilated. And now we have confusion running amok. People are not using God's word to interpret things that are going on in the nation right now. They're not filtering these things through the word of God. And therefore, you will never understand I'm going to tell you right now, you will have no understanding of what is going on today, and the judgment is coming if you don't have your eyes through Scripture. You have to see things the way God sees them. Not the way you see them, the way God sees them. Let his wisdom guide you. Amen? For the sake of this country, you can no longer afford to turn your head. You cannot do it. Simply because you don't want to hear it, or you want to be confronted with reality. Something I think you'll find interesting. I mean, just ponder these things. If you ever just take time to look at our governmental monuments, the structures, the symbols that are present in this country, what do you find missing? Christian symbology. Things pertaining to the Bible, right? However, saying, you know, having said that, we do have uh, a, a few things that are out there, such as this picture of Moses, well, isn't this good news? Here we have Moses sitting right here. It's interesting. This is the Library of Congress, by the way. It's interesting that he's holding tablets here. There's nothing written on him. I don't know if that was intentional. Uh, if we can just dictate whatever laws we want, then maybe it was intentional. I don't know. But here you have Moses and it would look like, you know, someone would, would go there and say, ah, obviously, we're clearly established on, on Christian principles. Moses is sitting right there. The only problem is, is this isn't Peter and this isn't Paul. This is Solon, the Greek philosopher, and this is Confucius, the philosopher. This picture sums up who we are as a nation. And I've I got to be honest with you, this picture sums up the vision that many of the founding fathers had for this nation. They, they would not explicitly inflict upon anyone their belief systems. And so what would it generate? What atmosphere would this generate? It would generate the atmosphere we're in right now where we have all sorts of religions. We have Buddhist temples, Muslims, uh, Muslim temples all over the place. Christian temples all over the place. It's like this picture right here pretty amazing. And you look at some of the other things. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because I don't want to. I don't need to. There's far more pressing matters. But you look at this picture. This is obviously a Statue of Liberty. There's a striking resemblance to Saul Invictus, the sun god, the bringer of light. And you can even find old coins with Constantine and Saul Invictus in the background. But my point is, when you start looking at these things that are all over, I don't see Torah scrolls and menorahs. 
I see Saul Invictus. I see Confucius. I see Solon. I see syncretism. That's what I see. I see syncretism. Let me share with you an article that was written in The Nation. It's called Our Godless Constitution. The faith of our founding fathers definitely wasn't Christianity. Our nation was founded not on Christian principles, but on enlightenment ones. God only entered the picture as a very minor player, and Jesus Christ was conspicuously absent. Our Constitution makes no mention whatsoever of God. The omission was too obvious to have been anything but deliberate. In spite of Alexander Hamilton's flippant responses when asked about it, according to one account, he said that the new nation was not in need of foreign aid. According to another, he simply said, we forgot. But as Hamilton's biographer, Ron Chernow, points out, Hamilton never forgot anything important. And the 85 essays that make up the Federalists, God is mentioned only twice, both times by Madison, who uses the word, as Gore Vidal has remarked, in the only heaven knows sense. In the Declaration of Independence, he gets two brief nods, a reference to the laws of nature and nature's God. Those are deist terms, by the way. And the famous line of, uh, about men being empowered by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That's from the Declaration of Independence. More blatant official references to a deity date from long after the founding period. And God we trust did not appear on a coinage until the Civil War. And under God was introduced into the Pledge of Allegiance during the McCarthy hysteria in 1954. So you see these things Reality starts to sink in, people. Now, I want to flip the coin over because I want to end on a good note. Despite the reality that, despite the reality that some of our founding fathers were not devoted Christians and the fact that our nation and its government may not have been conceived exclusively from the Bible and the Bible alone, understand the majority of the people that lived in that day lived as though it had. We see evidence of this. And this is very encouraging and very critical for you to understand in the coming weeks. You know, Christianity was prevalent. And it had a, it had a significant impact on our country. It was influential even before, you know, going back to last week, even before the United States declared their independence. Over 100, 150 years going back, you have to remember we had a presence of Christianity in this land. Massachusetts Bay Colony, one of the 13 colonies we looked at, that was founded by Puritans. They were known for their piety. They were known for their godliness. They were known to have come here to spread truth, to get out from the tyrannical dictatorship that was abusing the church. That's why they came to the New World. And they were known for their godly behavior, along with other groups, right? You had the Quakers, you had the Pilgrims, and, and many other groups. There was a huge, massive presence of people that truly feared God. I mean, you don't have to look hard into our history to see the evidence of it. Because there was a true, this is what I believe and I know to be true, of even looking at history, there was a real move of God in this nation. Despite the architectural documents that founded this nation, despite the Declaration, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Despite that, there was a move of God in this nation. And we were predominantly Christians. That's a fact. Let me give you an example. And I, I, could, I, you know, I could spend the next two weeks showing you examples and proof of this. But it, as, go, as I was going through my notes, I decided to choose this one. Because this is an unbiased perspective. This was a man who was outside of the country who had come to America for this very reason, to analyze what was going on. And his name is Alexis de Tocqueville, and he was a French social scientist, and he had traveled to the United States and ended up doing a two-part work. And his book is called Democracy in America. And it says democratic here, but it's Democracy in America. And I want to show you how this book has been described. The most comprehensive and penetrating analysis of the relationship between character and society in America that has ever been written. This is a good introduction for what we're about to embark on. But as, as Tocqueville became to, as he came to America and perceived what was going on, listen to what he said. 
Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, and the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things to which I was unaccustomed, in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found that they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. That's amazing. Moreover, all the sects of the United States are comprised uh, within the great unity of Christianity. This is a, this is a third-party, unbiased perspective. And Christian, Christian morality is everywhere the same. America is still the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest real power over men's souls. I want you to think about that because this statement you need to carry with you into next week. You just hear what he said? America is still the place where Christian religion has kept the greatest real power of over, over man's souls. It had reigned in wickedness. Light was being bore to this nation. Much light was in this nation, and it was controlling the flesh. Think about that statement. And nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man, since the country where it now has the widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest. Christianity has therefore retained a stronghold on the public mind in America. In the United States, Christianity itself is, is a fact so irresistibly established that no one undertakes either to attack it or to defend it. You think about the presence of Christianity in this nation. It was powerful. So despite the fact that this nation wasn't formally, if you, if you will, on paper, constructed for the Messiah Yeshua, his kingdom alone, based upon biblical principles, Many men and women lived as though it had. That's a fact. And so my point is this. I believe without question that the reason this nation was blessed and prospered was because of the behavior of its inhabitants. We know this to be true. The people of this nation, they walked and feared God. And you would hear people giving praises to the name of Yeshua, to Jesus The truth of the matter is, is that up to about 50, 60 years ago, men and women who sought to engage in sin, guess what? They had to do so very, very quietly. Why? Society wouldn't have tolerated it. Society did not tolerate open and overt sin. Divorce was uncommon. It was the exception, not the rule. Parents were rearing their children with all diligence. Wives revered their husbands. And the husbands were honorable men, having integrity, loving their wives, and being faithful. That really was what was going on back then, with a few exceptions. So next week, I'm going to end here for today. Next week, we're going we're gonna to go put our seatbelts on, get in the upright position, and do our takeoff thing. We're going to get into the, the meat of the matter next week. Shabbat shalom.